You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Derek Falvey is one of many baseball executives to blossom from the Mark Shapiro tree. He spent nine seasons with the Cleveland Indians before taking over as the Minnesota Twins' chief baseball officer in November 2016. Falvey was tasked with the turnaround of a 103-loss Twins team, promptly guiding Minnesota to an American League wildcard berth during his first year at the helm. I recently sat down with Falvey to discuss his start in the Cape Cod League, his memories of facing his former mentor's Blue Jays team with the Indians during the 2016 ALCS, and much more. Enjoy this conversation with Twins Chief Baseball Officer, Derek Falvey. Derek, thanks for taking some time. Well, it's good to be here. So you grew up outside of Boston in the town of Lynn, Massachusetts. Yep. I assume by law you had to be a Red Sox fan? <laughs> by, by law, I think. Uh, my grandfather and by law. Those two were uh, were clearly influences uh, in my life. Grandfather was probably scarier than the law at that point, yeah, right? Exactly right. Good, <laughs> good way to put it. Who, uh, who were your favorite players growing up? You know, I, I grew up in an interesting era of uh, Red Sox baseball. I remember I, I caught when I was a you know little kid in, in spring training. I'm sorry, in Little League. and uh, So Tony Pena was always a guy I loved. Uh, you know, Roger Clemens was a pitcher during some of my early years. I remember John Valentin playing shortstop and otherwise. There were some good teams in there. And then uh, certainly Nomar Garcia-Parra as he came along and otherwise. It was a fun, fun set of years. You played baseball in high school. You were also mm-hmm. the quarterback of your football team. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was baseball always your favorite sport? Definitely. I, you know, I, I think back to when I was really young, you know, just playing playing the game, loving the game. I had an uncle who was an umpire. Uh, he actually umpired a little bit in the Penn League and then eventually went on to coach high school and uh, umpire in the Cape Cod Baseball League and summer leagues and college sports. And so um, he, he and I, you know, we'd chase around. I had an older cousin who played baseball a lot. So I remember it, my earliest memories are – watching games as much as I could anywhere I went. So we've established that baseball was your favorite sport. At what age did you first think about, I want to work in baseball? Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't really, you know, as I went through and I played in college and, uh, and as I was playing, I wasn't really thinking about it at that moment as, as a career. I just didn't think how to get in. And I, I remember uh, thinking, I'm not going to play professionally. And, you know, I don't know anybody in professional baseball. So I assumed that was the only way to get in. And when I uh, when I finished, you know, it was always kind of in the back. Finished school, it was in the back of my mind. I love baseball, still love the game, but wasn't sure how to get in. Uh, and then uh, guys like Theo Epstein and you know Moneyball came out, and all these guys were getting into the game, and you saw what they were doing, and you thought maybe there is a path. So uh, it was it was after college, and I had had some uh, curiosity around scouting and, and development, mostly on the pitching side, but just across the board and. I had seen some Cape Cod Baseball League games and, and kind of came up with an idea around a way to maybe start building a network and see if there's an avenue into the game. You know, it's funny. Almost everybody I speak to in these interviews mentions Moneyball at some point. Yeah. The book, you yeah. know, especially the younger executives. Like sure. Do you think Michael Lewis had any idea not only the impact his book would have on the game, but in who's running the game? I mean, it seems like it inspired a, a lot of people to think... I can do this too. If they can do it, why can't I? Yeah, I, you know, I don't, I don't know Michael. I've never met him, but I, I assume he wasn't thinking of that when he wrote the book. But it, it certainly has played out that way. He talked to so many of my peers, you know, in terms of the age group of those in baseball, and it, it had an influence for sure. I think for me, it was I'd read Moneyball, but I'd also read Dollar Sign on the Muscle, which was one of those just true scouting books. And and I remember there's a scouting reports book that has old ones of Greg Maddox when he was in high school and so many other players. I I devoured those as much as I devoured the Moneyball. Piece. So it was 
Now, the, the influences around the game uh, in terms of what had been written was, was significant in my mind. Speaking of scouting reports, you pitched for Trinity College, Division Three. <laughs> yeah. give, us, give us a scouting report on Not yourself. Not good. <laughs> <laughs> I, used to t- I used to tell people that I could, I could, I was like a glorified batting practice pitcher. It seemed like uh, guys could hit the ball a long way off of me. I, I feel like I, I got by a little bit more with uh, pitchability than I did stuff. You graduated from Trinity with a degree in economics. Mm-hmm. What did you do right after graduation? You know, I, I had initially, um, uh, when I was in school, had been uh, working with uh, a group on the engineering side uh, to help market a product that they were building. It was a really small uh, small venture. And when I was doing that in college, I started to realize that there was some uh, capacity for helping to do some kinds of marketing plans and development plans for small businesses on the web. It just wasn't as much, uh, you know, certainly the web revolution had already happened, but in terms of... Um, maybe lawyers, uh, lawyers, dentists, doctors' offices, smaller companies, construction companies, and otherwise, they weren't being marketed. And, and while I was in college, I started to help some companies do that, and I got paid for it. I kind of converted it into a business. Uh, and so my first thought as I graduated college was, let me see how this goes. I, you know, I'm, I'm 23 years old. I've, I've got a roster of about 10 clients right now. Could I jump that up? I ended up jumping that up to somewhere in the neighborhood of you know, 30 to 40 different clients, doing different levels of engagement with those, those companies. Uh, it was a lot of fun, but that was when really the, you know, the, the bug started to uh, get into my head about how do I potentially also work in baseball. So that, that opportunity where I was working uh, separately for myself, creating a little bit of a roster of clients, having some flexibility, the same time I was thinking about how could I get down a path in baseball, which led me to the Cape Cod experience. So in Cape Cod, you went, you put together some scouting reports, some video reports on guys what did you do with them? How did you make this network of connections? Yeah, it was a. You know, I, I remember calling a few different writers. Uh, I remember talking to Kevin Goldstein at the time, who was with Baseball Prospectus. Uh, I reached out to a few different people, Baseball America or otherwise, and I just asked about avenues into the game. And uh, as I, one thing that kept coming back to me was the best way to get in is to show that you can do something in the game. Uh, that, that it's not uh, baseball isn't the type of industry where you have these long training programs, you know, whereas big businesses might have that for their new employees. You have to be able to step into a front office or a scouting staff or otherwise and make an impact right away. Uh, there's certainly people who will mentor, mentor you and train you, but you got to have a skill that you can apply right away. And so I felt like my skill in doing the building the business that I had while uh, thinking about baseball was I could use the web as a resource. I could cut up video. I could take video. I could write up reports. So my goal in going to the Cape was I'll take video of every player on the Cape, I'll cut it up into chunks and segments, and this was before a lot of amateur video was on YouTube. I'd cut it up, I'd upload it, and what I'd do is I'd provide that as a resource to scouts. Most of the time uh, in, in the Cape, scouts will come in for a seven to 10 day period, then they're gone, and then they're gone for the summer. What I would do is, my hope was I would build relationships with those guys, send them video free of charge. Uh, you know, it wasn't, wasn't a business I was trying to build, right. I was just trying to build a network. And as I gave that video off to others, I wrote my own reports. And then I asked guys for feedback and thoughts on it. And uh, I built some really great relationships. There were a handful of scouts there that, were, that, that kind of took me under their wing and uh, recognized that I, I wasn't there to try and take their job or otherwise. I was trying to learn from them. And that whole summer was a tremendous experience and, and led down some paths to eventually some interviews. It was kind of like your own unpaid internship for exactly yourself. Right. Exactly <laughs> right. And, and, and the hope was that I showed... Hey, if someone passes my information along, either the video, the scouting reports, or otherwise, to somebody in a hiring position, maybe they'll say, this is a kid who's got a passion for it, he's got some skills, and we, we have a slot for him somewhere in scouting, in development, in the front office, as an intern, you know, picking up coffee, whatever it was, like, I was willing to do it. So it led to an internship at the Indians? Yes. Once that happens, are you now thinking, okay, 
I'm putting all my energy in this. I want a career in baseball. You know, it, yes, because, you know, you get the internship. I, I was very fortunate to have a couple of different interviews. And in Cleveland, I interviewed for an internship in baseball ops that was focused a little bit more in, in scouting. And I had met uh, Brent Yurchek, who was an area scout at the time for them, who passed my name on to Brad Grant, who was the scouting director. And uh, they brought me in. I, I got a chance to interview, met Mark Shapiro and Chris Antonetti and Mike Chernoff and all those guys. And it was a great experience. They, they bring me in, and my job was just to manage a lot of the information on the amateur scouting side. And from day one, it was like it, I never felt like I'd gone to work. You know, I was, I was there from as early as they let me in the building to whenever I could go home. And, and you know, it was, it was such an experience where I could, I could learn as much as I could about every aspect of the baseball operation. I certainly had duties in certain areas, uh, but you know, Mike Chernoff in particular and, and Brad allowed me to be involved in just about anything that was going on. Uh, and at, from that day forward, I, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I've gone to work a day in my life. So after your internship, you get hired full-time at the Indians. You work in the international and amateur scouting departments. Mm-hmm. Then you get promoted throughout the next four years. Assistant director of baseball ops, co-director of baseball ops, ultimately assistant GM. Were you surprised how quickly you ascended through that organization? You know, maybe at some point in my life I'll look back on that and think of it that way. The the special thing about the Cleveland Indians and their organization, the way they operate, is that regardless of your title, you know, they give you opportunity to grow and develop. So uh, there are plenty of uh, things that are outside of your job description and when you're an assistant in baseball ops that you get involved in, trade discussions or building information. That The one thing I, Mark Shapiro and, and Chris Antonetti in particular impressed upon me at the outset was you're going to have duties you got to do. That's probably going to take up 40 hours of your week. What you do with the next X number of hours, that's going to define your your growth and development in the game. And I, that really, really hit home for me. It felt like, you know, if I could just be involved in so many things, I feel like, how can I make an impact in, you know, whether it's what we're doing in the draft or how we're selecting players internationally or how we set up our, our processes, you know, in terms of uh, getting guys visas. You know, there's so many little details of how baseball works. Uh, I was trying to get involved in all of it. And as I grew, I never thought title. I, I can honestly tell you that. I, I never thought, what was, what's the next step? When do I get that next promotion? It was just do the job I'm doing well and help everyone else around me as best I could. A lot of executives that thrive on the analytical side tend to be Ivy Leaguers who either didn't play beyond high school or maybe played in college, uh, if that. You played in college. Your first big league job wasn't scouting. Mm-hmm. When did you first become enamored with the analytical side of it? You know, I think that because I was, uh, you know, I had an economics background from college. Uh, it was probably more my, my father jokes with me from time to time. I'm more math oriented than I am uh, maybe English oriented. I'd rather do the problem set than I would write the ten page paper. But uh, in my mind, it was always a blend for me. I, I think I became fascinated by it. Um, even in high school as you know the fantasy baseball stuff started to come and you thought okay there's some evaluation of players but there's some projection systems out there there's a there's something that looks forward for each of these players which ones you know, what do I what can I learn from that information and so that started then and then continued to grow in college and then when I you know got a chance to to, to start up and do what I was doing in the Cape, one of the things that I did in addition to the scouting and video aspect of it was I tried to run a statistical study on the Cape Cod League and find if there were unique indicators in terms of performance metrics that led to success when those guys were drafted. So I tried to blend, my view of it was, I love the scouting side, I want to learn more of it, I want to get more experience in that space, but I have some skills that apply on the analytical side and I think I can blend them together. In Cleveland, you oversaw the pitching program for the Indians, used biomechanics and some unorthodox mm-hmm. methods, uh, you know, players in the system using weighted balls, etc. Mm-hmm. Do you think teams need to take some risks and try different things to try to stay ahead of the pack? I, I do think that we all, 
we're all there's a lot of information that's out there that a lot of teams have and i think there's every team in some way shape or form is using analytics or using some type of information to drive decisions uh, if we're all doing that we need to find separators you know the what are the two percent edge in different areas and in my mind it the you asked the question about taking risks i think we have to i think we have to do things to push the envelope a bit but do it thoughtfully i, I one thing i really am sensitive to is you know these players these are their careers and i, I never want to think of it uh, think of players as you know, test cases for anything i will always want to approach it with a thoughtful thoughtful idea in mind but there are some players who may be on the edge of you know, being released you know they're in the minor leagues they're not quite growing at that a certain level bringing something to those players to say hey this is an aggressive plan this might be something a little bit more unique uh, it, might, it, it might take you a little bit off track but we think this is the best chance for you to take that leap forward that you need to take to get to the next level I, I feel like we have to take those chances uh, to be successful. You know, every team does, but certainly teams do that. You know, kind of in the middle markets and, and lower payroll teams uh, that have to be more sensitive to how they can grow their their game outside of just free agency. And those players that you're talking about are probably more open to those ideas than, let's say, a ten-year veteran. Typically, typically, but I will say that when you're around a ten-year veteran who's always thriving, curiosity drives them, and they're thriving to learn as much as they can from somebody else, that's that's exciting because those guys are the ones that you know, they get better, they evolve. Those are the ones that are probably playing into their late 30s and early 40s. So it's uh, it's it's fun to be around those guys. But I think for the younger players, you're right. Those are the guys that need to take a meaningful jump forward or potentially they're facing the end of their career. When the Twins hired you at the end of the 2016 season, you became the second youngest head of baseball operations in the majors, only your former colleague David Stearns yep. younger than you. Does age matter in this job anymore? You know, age to me is, uh, I look at it this way, what set of experiences have you had uh, in the game that, that prepare you for the job? And uh, David you know, David and I lived together actually in spring training, so you know, we're roommates as well and close friends, but I would say that both David and I have been very fortunate, both in Cleveland and, and then David's experiences in Houston before he got to Milwaukee, to be exposed to a lot of different areas. You know, I think about, I started out in scouting, I did some work in international operations, uh, got involved in professional scouting on the major league side, uh, then eventually got you know, part of the pitching program, what we're doing in player development, which then led into an opportunity where I was very close with Terry Francona and our major league staff. I felt like in a very short period of time in Cleveland, I had exposure to every area of our baseball operation, and that's a credit to the, my bosses. That's a credit to the people who allowed me to do that. So I think age oftentimes is a proxy for those experiences, but I, I hope that during the time uh, that I was in, in Cleveland, I got a chance to develop skills that uh, apply across all different areas, which better prepare me for this opportunity. And I'll continue to grow and develop and learn from those around me. You had one year under your belt as the assistant GM in Cleveland when you got hired by the Twins. I think on an earlier podcast, when I was, I think I was talking to Mike Kirsch, and he was saying, you know, he turned down a GM interview at some point earlier in his career, yeah. thinking he might not be ready for that yet. Mm -hmm. Was there any part of you that wondered if you were ready for this job? You know, I, I, I like Mike, not necessarily the GM job, but I had opportunities to to leave Cleveland at different junctures, just with um, with interest from you know, other clubs or friends or otherwise around the game. Uh, and, and like Mike, in those cases, I really thought deeply about what, what mattered to me, what was important to me, just not just beyond the career growth, but like for my family and, and living and, and the situation. And so this was a very unique opportunity. Uh, you know, I felt like uh, I, I wasn't thinking about it you know, when, when they had made a change in, in the summer and we're charging toward the playoffs and we're just getting ready for the 2016 playoff season. Uh, when Chris Antonetti came into my office and said, hey, the, the Twins would have interest in speaking with you about this job, 
it, it kind of came out of nowhere in my mind. I didn't have relationships with anybody with the twins. Uh, didn't know anybody here. Didn't know the ownership group. So uh, in my mind, it was kind of came out of left field. And and so I remember going home talking with my wife about it. And my first questions to Chris and to our group internally were, "What do you know about the environment there? What do you know about the ownership group? Uh, what do you know about the culture? What do you know about all those aspects of it?" And as I did my homework and started asking questions and digging, you know, knowing that Jim Polad and the Polad family and Dave St. Peter, our club president, otherwise were the types of people, you know, the, the high character people, the people who invest and are loyal and have uh, been a part of an organization for a long time as a family ownership group. For the first time, I, I started thinking to myself, this is a lot like what it is in Cleveland and what I love so much about Cleveland. Uh, there was an opportunity to create uh, a, a new a new baseball operation there. And I don't think you're ever, in talking with others who've taken the job, I don't think they ever felt ready for it. <laughs> I think when you take it, you know that you're going to be drinking from a fire hose for the first year, at least. But um, I knew that I was, because of my, the mentors I had in front of me, because of Mark and Chris and Mike and Ross and you know, peers of mine like Carter Hawkins and Paul Gillespie and others, these guys helped prepare me for it, and I, I was ready to take on the challenge. You mentioned you were going through the interview process. You got hired, I believe, a couple of days before the playoffs started. Right. So you're starting to think about how you're going to start things in yeah. Minnesota. You were still with the Indians yeah. as they were going through the playoffs, making yeah. a run to the World Series. Yeah. How heck of a month was that for you? <laughs> Craziest month of my life, without without question. I would tell you that this, this was a credit to two ownership groups that um, really work well together. Paul Dolan and Jim Pollett had talked, and Paul had just asked when I went through the interview process, not knowing where I was in terms of their uh, candidate list, that because of my role at the, with the Major League team, it would be highly disruptive to that group uh, around our advanced process and what we're doing on a day-to-day basis at the Major League level for me to just kind of disappear as we ran into the playoffs. And that's not saying that I was the, you know, the crux of it. It was just I, I helped a lot in that area. And so I was a big part of um, just the day-to-day operation. So uh, it was agreed that whenever the Indian season ended, you know, that I would then proceed on to Minnesota, but not until then. Well, that was before the playoffs had started, and you know, we went to Game 7 of the World Series with a rain delay. So I mean, it went about as late as it could possibly <laughs> go. But I, you know, it was, I, was, I was constantly focused. I split my day in a way where I focused a good portion of the day on what we needed to do that day in Cleveland to prepare for that series, those sets of games or otherwise. And then all the rest of my time was kind of focused on future planning for the Twins. So uh, I didn't get involved in any of the future planning conversations in Cleveland at that, at that time for obvious reasons. Uh, but it was certainly um, a test in terms of uh, how many hours you had in a day. I feel like if you had tried to leave before the playoffs, Terry Francona would have handcuffed you to a chair in his office. <laughs> he might have. He might have. And that's a, I'm very fortunate that way. Uh, I've read that you still talk to, to Chris Anthony and Mike Turnoff quite often, mm-hmm. picking their brains about running and managing an organization. Sure. They're division rivals of yours. Yeah. Is that ever strange? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, you know, probably me more so than... Uh, them, I'm sensitive to asking too many questions of them, mostly because I don't want to put them in an awkward spot around that aspect of it. You know, they're 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 charging ahead. They're they're the leader of the division. They have been. They've proven it. Uh, and we're cha- we're trying to chase them down. I, I think you know what it boils down to is you never get into specifics. You know, around the team building anymore, uh, which I miss. You know, those conversations with them. But at the same time, big picture and development and growth. You know, I think we both want to see each other succeed in so many different ways. We care. We care more about each other than just as colleagues. You know, those guys became family to me in, in so many different ways. I lived with Chris in spring training for the last few years you know, down in, in Arizona before I came here. So I think there's just that connection will never change. And those guys, my hope is those guys are you know, 
proud of some of the things we're doing here in Minnesota and the growth that we've been able to achieve in the short period here. Might it have been different if you had gone to, let's say, a team in the NL West? Maybe. You weren't facing them 18 times yeah, a year? Yeah, maybe. I think, you know, the true test of that will be when we're really buttoned up right against each other. Right. And uh, if we have that opportunity, we were, you know, one, All of a sudden one game away. Phone calls. <laughs> right. We were one game away last year from having that happen, you know, if things had gone differently in New York. But uh, it was just, you know, it's one of those uh, unique aspects of it. I, I think had I been in the NL West, maybe they would prefer that to some degree. But uh, I know that they're, I know they're proud of, of what I've accomplished, and I'm, I'm just in, indebted to them for you know, the rest of my life. You and Thad Levine had never worked together mm-hmm. before Minnesota. What drew you to him when you were making your GM hire? You know, Thad is somebody who has an incredible reputation around the game, just in terms of relationships, friendships um, that he's built. And he had uh, he had had more years of experience with Chris Antonetti. They hadn't worked together, but just their friendship had gone back a number of years. And, and when I got this opportunity, uh, and there was the chance to hire a general manager to be a partner, uh, I, I had been thinking about different people around the game, and Thad's name kept coming up, and Chris was somebody who was you know, a strong advocate for excuse me, who Thad is. And I, uh, and, you know, I got a chance over the years to meet Thad. We, we built a friendship you know, from a distance. I, anytime I was on the road going through Texas, maybe we'd spend some time together before the game or during the game, uh, and then during GM meetings or winter meetings or otherwise. But I, I really knew that he had a set of skills and experiences that really complemented mine well. He had had some uh, opportunities to do a lot more on the negotiation side with agents. You know, J.D. had set him up that way in Texas uh, around arbitration and, and some of those aspects of it. I had had maybe a bit more experience on the scouting and development sides of things, maybe a, a little bit more on the day-to-day on the major league side. So we felt like it. when I talked to him and we spent maybe six to ten hours on the phone during a period of time there through an interview process, it became very clear that our values lined up and, and what we wanted to do and what motivated us and how we wanted to work together was, was clear. And you know, the references spoke to who he was as a person, and I just feel very fortunate to have him as a partner. You and Thad were officially introduced last November following your hectic October. Mm-hmm. Um, the rain delay and yeah. finally stopped. Uh, <laughs> Then you guys basically got on a plane and headed right to the GM meetings uh, that week. Yep. Was there a feeling of jumping in with both feet? I mean, you basically get introduced, and then it's, okay, go put this team together. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's I, I, the way I viewed it was I, w- I was trying to prepare, certainly, while I remained in Cleveland. Uh, but then when you get a chance to meet people and put faces to names and you're starting to work, it, it is. You're, you're all in right away. I remember my, my wife and young son, uh, they stayed back in Cleveland at our, our home there. And, and my wife said to me, why don't you just go up to Minnesota for a little while? We'll stay here. The holidays are about to come. You know, we'll, we'll figure out. We'll go back to our families, East Coast. You just deal with that right now. And, and I, that's a gift my wife gave me that I'll never be able to repay because it was 24 hours a day for the first couple of months where you felt like you were just trying to get up to speed with people and, and knowing everybody in the process. So uh, we had a, a, you know an opportunity to help improve the team but recognize we were coming off a tough year, uh, find the right kinds of guys that fit in the character and the culture of our clubhouse, make a few key hires, and then you know, start building for the future. How difficult was it? I mean, you're trying to put together not only a roster but an entire organization. Mm-hmm. You come in. You have to, like I said, sort of jump in with both feet. Yeah. But you, aside from watching them from afar and reading scouting reports, you don't know your minor league system. Absolutely. You don't know these guys. You don't know personally yeah. the big leaguers. What's the biggest challenge of trying to 
do all of that without the institutional knowledge of the organization. It, you know, it had been so long since I had not known the people in the organization, right? When I first started with the Indians, I mean, back in the fall of 2007, you know, it had been a, a decade, you know, to, more close to that I, I didn't know people and I walked through the door. And my nature is to want to know the people and to really get to know them inside out and know what makes them tick and not just the numbers on the sheet and the scouting reports that are in our, our, our computer and the system. I wanted to really understand the dynamic of the culture. So uh, one of the things I did really early on was to send out a, a, a culture survey to everyone in our baseball operation. It was an anonymous survey, had a bunch of questions on it for statements, for rating, to try and understand where we were in, in terms of collaboration or you know, resources, what was needed, and a lot of free-form answers. Got incredible feedback. And that helped me feel like I got, okay, of the 200 people we sent it out to, we got 180 responses. Let me dive into this and get a sense for how our people feel about our organization. That sped it up, but then you know you got to know the players and you got to know more of it. The first year of a transition, you know, I, I I could tell I can help maybe somebody else going through it the next time because I can share what I've learned through that process. I will say that what was unique about the Twins was so many people who care so deeply about this franchise were there to help to serve, and and I'm I'm very lucky in that way. Got 180 back out of 200. I'm surprised yeah. there are 20 who didn't respond to the boss. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the anonymous nature of it, they were they, they were right. okay with it. Or maybe computer issues. <laughs> right. So there was a sense that the Twins were a very old-school franchise mm-hmm. before you and Thad took over here. Was there a conscious effort to change that culture within the building? Yeah, I think sometimes that's, um, from the outside looking in, is never always the same as when you get inside. I, I would say that there certainly was, this team was rooted in scouting and development for a long time. Um, Terry Ryan's one of the finest scouts this game has ever had, and, and his mark was left across the entire organization in terms of scouting. So I viewed that as a real positive, that we had some uh, highly talented evaluators, guys like Mike Radcliffe and Darren Johnson and uh, Tim O'Neill, and you, know, you just go Larry Corgan, you go across the board. We just had so many good talent evaluators. But what I did recognize was there was maybe a, a bit of a missing piece in the research and development areas uh, where we could potentially use some systems in a different way. We did have a lot of good people here that were working on some of that. But I had, because of my experiences in Cleveland, because of some of Thad's experiences in Texas, we felt we could enhance that. So that was a big part of this, was shifting a little bit of our mindset around using just the scouting information to blending the two, scouting and, and objective measures. Uh, not many executives take over a team that holds the first overall pick in the draft. Mm-hmm. How exciting was that for you, and what was your process in making the ultimate decision to select Wes Lewis? You know, I, I remember uh, during the course of the interview uh, with with uh, Polad's uh, Polad family, with Dave St. Peter, some of the people involved in the other companies, um, and I remember they asked a lot of questions about what were big items that you had to tackle in the short term here, or what was the plan early on, and I remember saying, the biggest decision we're going to need to make here in the short term is actually not around the major league team. It's it's all about that number one pick. We're going to have an asset there that's going to be significant and may change the course of our franchise. And so setting up the right conditions to make the best possible decision, you know, at the come June was was important to me. And you know, when we got a chance through the course of the fall and the winter to line up the board, a lot of good players in that draft, no question. As we got a little bit closer to the draft, Royce wasn't necessarily the highest profile guy at the number one pick, but we got to know the person. We got to know the character. We got to know his parents, who are tremendous, by the way. And you know, we got to know everything that made him tick. And in addition to scouting and evaluating the player, that was a perfect blend of our scouts knowing a lot of information, um, knowing the player as well as they possibly could, evaluating the talent, also understanding the makeup, and then our metrics all together blended to say, this is the guy we're going to bet on. And I can tell you we're not... 
we couldn't be more thrilled that he was the guy we selected. You know, you talk about makeup and talent and family and all that. It almost sounds like you're describing another shortstop who got drafted about 28 years, 27 years ago. Is it? I mean, obviously, you can't expect anybody to be Derek Jeter. Sure. But when you when you look at the impact that Derek had on the mm-hmm. Yankees. Is that the kind of impact that you can see him making in terms of being that kind of franchise player? You know, you hate to put that kind of pressure on any young <laughs> of kid. I mean, you know, with what it is on his shoulders, we want Royce to be the best version of himself, whatever that is. But I will say this. He's one of those rare kids that at 17, 18 years old, you know, he's out there. He's the first one going to the kids' camps, you know, that are here in Fort Myers and helping out with things that are outside of the realm of just the baseball. I think we all certainly focus on what happens on the field, and that is that is critical in any of these players' careers. But you want to find the guy who wants to elevate his teammates. You know, that's the champion. That's the champion's heart. And I think he's got a lot of those characteristics that if everything breaks right you know, on the field and the way he goes about continuing to develop who he is as a baseball player and, and our supporting of that, we think that he has a chance to be special, someone who's in the face of our franchise at some point in the future. With your team in contention last summer, you traded for Jaime Garcia. Then you shipped him out to the Yankees about a week later. <laughs> traded Brandon Kinsler yeah. uh, to Washington. Things change faster than people realize, especially that time of year. Yeah, that that was a really you know unique year. I think when we when we had made the original Jaime Garcia trade, I think we were a half game out, uh, a game out of the division, and a half game out of the wild card. And you know, we were right there, hanging in there. Uh, about a week later, uh, and not all of the fault of our own, we didn't have a great week, but uh, I think the Indians and Royals together combined for like 19 straight wins. <laughs> it was it was kind of a unique run between the two clubs, and we found ourselves you know seven or eight games back in each of those spots. And uh, admittedly, it was it was a challenging dynamic, and I think that you know ultimately we could have just kind of wrote it out and, and said we are where we are. But that's you know that in some ways I look at it as maybe the easy decision. The, the challenging challenging decision for us at that moment in time was to say, what do we think the best course is with all the information we have at hand right now? And because New York had sincere interest in Jaime, we felt like we could get real value back. We got two young pitchers that helped uh, add to our core. Uh, and then in Brandon's case, we felt like we had some guys in our bullpen that could step up. Not that Brandon wasn't Brandon was exceptional for us, no question. But to get another young pitcher to kind of add to the stable to build toward the the future of a, a sustainable winning team, we felt those were the right decisions at the right time. We knew they'd be unpopular. We knew they'd be unpopular within our clubhouse and you know potentially within our market. But I will tell you that the guys responded. You know they never changed the way they looked at, at playing moving forward. By and large, we had the vast majority, outside of Brandon, we had the same team that had achieved what they had achieved up to that point, and we, we hoped guys would step up in the bullpen, and they did. And ultimately, it's a credit to guys in the clubhouse, you know, the work they put in down the stretch, and our chance to kind of separate ourselves from the pack that was competing, and then to have a great August and September to get into the playoffs was just a joy to watch. You take over a team that lost 103 games, you get to the postseason in your first year yeah. here. Were you surprised how quickly things turned around? You know, I remember uh, I remember at the outset when people asked, what's a reasonable win total for next year? You lose 103 games and they want you to put a mark on it. Is it 60, 65, 70, 75? What's it look like? And I remember saying... I'm not a big believer in putting limits on a team. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't think there's a, a number and say, okay, if we get there, then we just mail it in the rest of the way. My view was, let's try and be the best versions of ourselves, you know, whatever that is. Now, uh, people laugh sometimes when I said that the 103 lost team we felt had real talent on it, had growing talent. When you have young players at the major league level, the wide range of outcomes, it's wider. You, know, you have some really lows. You have some high highs. But we had a group, a core group, with Byron Buxton and Max Kepler and Eddie Rosario, Jorge Polanco. Those young guys were growing right alongside the Joe Mowers and Brian Dozier's and otherwise. 
So we felt like we had to address the catching situation and, and eventually led to Castro, but also let those guys grow and, and let the win total take care of itself. So uh, surprising to jump to the playoffs in year one? Yeah, I'd say that's probably accurate, just given that that hadn't been done before. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think we thought this team didn't have a chance to compete. Did last season's success change the way you approached not only this past offseason, but sort of your long-term view of, of your plan for the team? I think it, uh, I would say uh, for the long-term view, didn't really change much. You know, I, but I do think for the short-term, it does change things. You know, when you have a team that uh, comes off an 85-win season, a you know, good bounce back, get into the wild-card game, you know what you have in terms of your core. You have a better idea of where your young players are in terms of their growth curve. And then you, you see where the gaps are. And so what we did is we went in the offseason saying, we got to find ways to impact this team positively. You know, we're not, we're not looking to trade away short-term assets. We're looking to add to it. So to get guys like Fernando Rodney and Zach Duke and then eventually Addison Reed and uh, ultimately then to trade for Jake Odorizzi you know, in spring training and, and get a guy like Hannibal Sanchez who we think has some bounce-back ability, we're not necessarily finished. You know, there could be more opportunities here as we go. Uh, it did change that short-term outlook. But, but toward the long term, you know, we're building around that young core for the future. You've talked about putting a focus on velocity development in the organization. Mm-hmm. Twins had the fewest pitches of 95 miles an hour since 2008 mm-hmm. when you arrived, according to my friend Tyler Kepner in the New York Times. <laughs> uh, it can't be an easy process for everybody to be doing it, right? Right. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> I think if you could just you know, snap your fingers and everyone start throwing 95, that'd be a plus. I think one of the things that we've hired analysts, um, some people with some interesting backgrounds, um, Josh Kalk, our, our new senior analyst on the pitching side, who worked with Tampa Bay Rays for a while, uh, has really opened our eyes to some different ideas around this. We want to maximize a guy's mix, you know, however we get out. So I think when you look at our team in the second half last year, uh, guys who, who finished game for us, whether it was Matt Belisle or Trevor Hildenberger, neither of those guys are going to light up the radar gun, but they know how to use their pitches effectively and their weapons. I think we're going we're gonna to build good arms. We're going to build some velocity. We're going to build good change-ups. We're going to teach guys to spin the ball well. It's all part of building the, the pitcher. And ultimately, uh, we feel like we've taken a step in that direction already and hope to take more in the future. You hired Daniel Adler, the director of baseball operations this offseason. He once interned in the labor relations department at MLB, but he spent the past five or six years working for the Jacksonville Jaguars, launching and developing their football research and development department. What prompted you to go after him and lure him back from the NFL? Yeah, Daniel's a guy who I got a chance to meet a number of years ago in Cleveland. Uh, he was working in the NFL uh, and just you know, built a bit of a friendship more than anything at the outset. Uh, he's very curious about how baseball operations worked. Um, had worked certainly with the LRDs. So we knew a little bit about the MLB side of things. Uh, when we got to a point, when I got the job and we were playing, he was finishing his excuse me, his JD MBA at Harvard last year in the fall, and we were playing the Boston Red Sox in the playoffs, and uh, I got a chance to connect with him while we were there. And he had, knew, he had known I'd gotten the job in Minnesota, and I think he was exploring the idea of potentially shifting out of football into something else, whether that was baseball, the business world, or otherwise. So I said, let's just stay in touch. You know, As you're finishing school, we think we're going to have real opportunity to grow and develop in the R&D space. Um, if that's something you have interest in, let's stay in touch. So we kept the conversation going. Uh, I talked to him about our culture and our environment, and you know, because of how uh, how special I think he is, you know, we, we kind of pushed and pushed and pushed to see if there might be an opportunity and brought him in, had, had a chance to interview with our group, and I think he's just been a, uh, an incredible add to, our, to our, our group of people. I think when you think about research and development, whether it's football, basketball, Olympic sports, business world, or otherwise, 
you're trying to do the same things. You're trying to ask the question, what are things we can do to improve our operation you know, from a development standpoint, from a selection standpoint, an evaluation standpoint? He's, he's impacted all of those areas. Now he just has to look at it a little differently through a baseball lens instead of a football lens. Paul DePodesta had gone the other way. Exactly. He went from working yep. baseball to going to be the chief strategy officer for the Browns. Do you see this becoming something of a trend? I mean, not a common one, but yeah. maybe not as uncommon as it's ever been where – Guys are jumping from sport to sport. Yeah, one of the things that, uh, again, going back to my Cleveland experience that I think was really unique was we got a chance to meet uh, people in different sports a lot. That was part of our conversation. I remember going out and visiting out the Philadelphia Cleveland, <laughs> <laughs> visiting the Philadelphia Eagles a number of years ago, uh, and meeting some people who were there. A uh, chance to meet with some other basketball teams and learn how they operate. I think once you get a chance to be around those people in different sports, you start to realize we're all dealing with the same sets of challenges. We're looking at the sport differently, certainly. It's in basketball and baseball, very different sports. But how do, we, how do you select players? You know, how, do you, how do you select in the draft? How do you evaluate makeup relative to tools and skills? That question transcends all sports. So if we can learn from other people in other sports about systems and how they operate and recovery and you know, how to guys, get guys to peak perform physically, those are all the same uh, challenges. And so keeping, keeping the doors open, I think we'd be naive to think the only people who can help us in baseball are baseball people. When you went to see the Eagles, you met Howie Roseman, yeah. uh, who's obviously the GM, just won the Super Bowl. Uh-huh. Uh, you seemed impressed by his analytics work and the performance programs he had installed. Uh, do you see the NFL or any other sport for that matter becoming as analytical as MLB? It seems like baseball has really yeah. been the leader in analytics in terms of utilizing them in player evaluation and, and player performance. You know, the one thing I would say about baseball relative to those sports, I've thought about that question a lot over the years. I, I think baseball is a little bit more of an individualized game where you can measure if you throw a pitch, that's your pitch. You know, the shortstop didn't impact that. If you field a ball at first base, you know the, the no one else is impacting that. And if you swing the bat, it's usually you. I think that makes it unique in our sport relative to maybe football, basketball, hockey even, uh, that there's a lot more interactions between what happens on any given play. So it's not to say that analytics can't play a role in those spaces, but maybe our sport is a little bit more geared toward the way of measuring individual events in a way that attributes value to one one person. So, you know, I think about that a lot. I think we'll always have that advantage just because of the way the sport is played. But I'm really impressed with what the NBA is doing and and the NFL in terms of tracking load and how much guys are – how they're on their feet or how much sprint time they have. There's all these GPS trackers that otherwise guys are using. You know, soccer uses this inf- this type of uh, uh, technology too. So I think we're all going to be able to learn from each other as we as we grow as a, as a sporting world. Terry Francona once said, and I quote, if you're asking me what Derek does, it would probably be better to say what he doesn't do. He does everything. In your eyes, what are your greatest strengths as an executive? Well, I appreciate that comment from Tito. I think I was just <laughs> trying to help him in any way, shape, or form. But, uh, you know, I, I would say my greatest strengths are, uh, my, I hope this is the case, that people around here feel this, is that I try and empower those around me. You know, I try and set up conditions that everyone can um, not be afraid to fail. They can, they can genuinely be successful. If, if there's anything that I want to pay for that that people like Mark and Chris and Mike in particular really um, gave me the opportunity to do was to was to learn and grow by, through experience, was to do a negotiation and you know, potentially be incredibly prepared for it because I knew they were counting on me to do the negotiation well, but recognize that I may, I may screw this up a little bit and I'm going to learn from it. And I'm trying to make sure that we create a culture that is um, – 
that there's a, a great deal of respect uh, across the board, that people feel like they can grow and develop, that there's a growth mindset principle here that everyone believes growth and development can come, that they have to put themselves out there to do it, but that we're going to be supportive of that. My, my hope is that's the strength that I bring to the organization. Everybody's always a little self-critical as well. Is there any area you look at yourself and say, I need to get better at blank? How much time you got? I, I get that, <laughs> that, list, that list is a heck of a lot longer than my We'll do a second strengths. podcast on yeah. that one. <laughs> I, that, that list is a, a lot longer than my strengths. You know, I know that you, know, you asked the question earlier about age. I'm not naive to think that I have the you know, experience of some of the guys around this game uh, that have been successful before. I, you know, there's so many things around team building and long-term planning and, and relationships with major league staff. And you know, what are the what are the what are my blind spots? What am I missing? One of the things I always try and ask. Uh, of executives who have come before me and people I get a chance to meet either in this sport or otherwise is what's something that you know now that you thought you knew 10 years ago and now you, you see it entirely differently because I want to know what did you grow and learn I, I hope that five years from now in this job I know a lot more than I do today because it means I've learned and taken steps to grow but I think there are so many different areas of the baseball operation that are constantly evolving that I want to get a, a better handle of. It's my view that I know about 5% of what I want to know in every area. And you know, let's make that 6% next year, and let's make that 7% the year after. It's never going to stop. You know, so I remember uh, Johnny Gorl, who's a longtime field staff member in the Cleveland Indians organization. He was actually a manager of the Twins a long time ago. He's in his 70s, and he, you know, he said during spring training one year, I was out with him on the field, and he said, come on, Derek, what do you got for me today? You know, Make me better. Give me a new idea. And I said, if he can say that you know, at his stage of his career, like – that should never stop. I should continue to grow. Who's the first guy who's made the I've got ties older than you joke? I'm sure you hear that once in a while. There. <laughs> I hear it from time to time, that's for sure. There's no doubt. <laughs> Having the job that you do have at the age of 34, do you have an ultimate aspiration in the game? Is it just, I want to win the World Series of the Twins and then see what happens from there? Is there a, if you could paint the ideal picture of your career arc? Yeah. What might that be? You know, I, I remember thinking when I was an intern and then I jumped into an assistant, you know, people ask, so what do you want to do in the game? I say, I want to do this job. And I want to do it really well. <laughs> and I want to potentially do it to a point where I, I gain more experiences, exposure, growth opportunities, and otherwise. And um, and then I took the next job and I did the same. I feel the same way here. I, you know, there's obviously a different level of responsibility that you feel when you're leading the baseball operation uh, than when you're supporting it, you know, in a, in a secondary position. But my, you know, my goal here is to is to make the Polad family proud, to make Twins fans for fans proud that we've put a team together, that we've built an organization that goes out every night and plays the best of its ability. Winning a World Series is the goal, right? That's our that's all of our goals, and we're never going to shy away from that. But I want to put ourselves in the best position to do it, you know. And, and however we do that, and do it the right way, do it with the right kinds of people, with the right kind of culture, with the right kind of environment, you know, pull, all pulling in the same direction, creating that. I think what I enjoy most about this job, and what I enjoy in general, is just the challenge that it presents. It's a, it's a hard job. You know, there's a lot that goes on. There's a lot of things you have to deal with every day. What fulfills me is the constantly being challenged to grow. And I think about Mark Shapiro shifting to Toronto. He'd been in Cleveland for such a long time. He'd been incredibly successful. That was a challenge for him. That was an opportunity to grow. You know, I, I, I guess he being one of my mentors, you know, I, I see that. I feel the same way. As long as I'm continuing to grow and develop and I've, I'm fulfilled and I'm doing the work that the Polad family and Dave St. Peter want me to do, like I'm, I'm going to be very happy with where I am. Derek Falvey, Chief Baseball Officer for the Minnesota Twins. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Many thanks to Derek Falvey for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. Our next episode will feature a conversation with Milwaukee Brewers Vice President and Assistant General Manager Matt Arnold. We'll talk about his early jobs with the Dodgers, Rangers, and Reds, his memories of Game 162 while working for the Rays, why one writer once referred to him as the Ben Zobrist of front offices, and much more. 
You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.